Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, welcome to the show. Today, I want to talk about Social Security and how we should understand its place in uh, legitimate policy and whether or not the current Social Security system is any good, whether it can be salvaged, and what we should prefer in its place. And of course, I want to talk about all of this in the context of subsidiarity and solidarity. So to start off with, what is Social Security? Well, it's a federal government program in the U.S. that allows uh, those who are of retirement age, so there's a certain age you have to reach before you can receive payments, uh, to receive payments based on uh, paying into the system. Um, at least that's in, in theory. Uh, how this works. And so the idea is that there's some kind of uh, tax that you've paid during your working life and then you're entitled to uh, benefits um, after you retire. And there's certain rules, you know, you can receive it a little bit before um, or something like that. And there's rules on um, depending on how old you are, how much you can work and stuff like that. But in general, I think most people start taking benefits when they're 65 or 66. Um, and if you start taking them when they're 66, you can work as much as you want. So what a lot of people do is they'll sort of double dip. They'll pull the benefits, start taking those benefits when they're 66 and keep working. Um, and, you know, the system was designed so that there would always be uh, political buy-in and so people get this idea that you know well I paid I paid in for X number of years I should I should uh, darn well get my benefits um, and so it's basically the, the program is bulletproof politically because there's there's always going to be a contingent of people who have a massive incentive to vote and to vote strongly uh, in favor of candidates who are going to preserve the system for them. And these payments aren't trivial. They're, um, you know, it's well in excess of $1,000 a month, um, depending on how much money you've made. And there's caps and stuff like that. I mean, uh, part of it is dependent on how much money you've paid in uh, and all of that. So, uh, you know, those who pay more in um, get higher benefits and stuff like that. Um. So I, I think most people who are somewhat politically savvy have some kind of knowledge that the program is uh, very, very um, tenuous at this point. It's, it's, it's on kind of its last leg. And I found a Facebook post by um, another uh, professional economist on my Facebook, uh, and I wanted to read his post. <laughs> he says... Uh, we're not aware of how much Social Security payroll taxes cost us because the cost has crept up over many years so as to keep the program solvent. In the 1950s, the Social Security tax was 2.25%. By the 1960s, it had more than doubled to 5.9%. By the 1980s, it had almost doubled again to 11.4%. Today, it stands at 12.4%. And the Social Security Board of Trustees says that it needs to rise to 15.1% if Social Security is to continue beyond 2036. Over the course of 80 years, the Social Security tax will have increased almost 600% faster than inflation to keep the program solvent. 
For comparison, over the same period, average college tuition rose 400% faster than inflation. If we believe that the rising cost of tuition is unsustainable, we should be far more concerned about the rising costs of Social Security. So the criticism of Social Security, uh, at least this criticism, I think is is uh, completely, uh, it's, it's impossible to argue against it. Uh, it simply is what it is. That's the math. Uh, Social Security was implemented when there were far more people working relative to how many people there were that were retired. But because of declining birth rates and people living longer, um, that math has changed dramatically. And so, you know, like he says, we're sitting at 12.4%. Um, you explicitly pay half of that and your employer pays the other six, the other uh, half, the other 6.2%, um, <clears throat> which is still an implicit cost of you for you, whether it comes out in, you know, the price of the goods you buy or in, you know, a, uh, a counterfactual reduction in your wage. Uh, either way, it's, it's costing you something. And the fact that the tax has to go up even more, um, almost three percentage points, just to stay solvent past the next 15 years is just unreal. Um, so I think there, there are some valid criticisms, and I think at the same time there are some um, not-so-good criticisms. Um, but I think, again, just kind of like over the last couple of weeks, and especially last week I was talking about you know economies of scale and stuff like that, it's interesting to see that the the left has a set of criticisms and preferences for policy that sometimes line up with ours. And this sort of um, mainstream right wing has a different set of criticisms and, and preferences than we do. And so we don't really fit into either category very well, I think. So <clears throat> I want to first talk about some of the crit critiques of the system that I think makes sense. I mean, so the first one I think you, you most often you get from the sort of mainstream right wing, which is that, you know, the system is just finan not financially viable. And, and I don't think it is. Um, if we have to keep increasing the uh, tax rate of the program just to maintain it, um, then eventually people are going to get tired of paying such a high tax. Um, you know, I people are encouraged, oh, don't think about it as a tax. Think of it as, you know, you're paying in now and, and that money is going to uh, maintain lives for, you know, maintain a financial position for older people now. And when you're when you're older, someone else is going to pay in and that's going to, uh, you know, make, make it so that you have benefits. And so you can see right away that it's not... It's not a matter of investment. There is no investment. It's not even as as, as bad as a defined benefit pension is. It's not even like a pension. It's just a transfer, um, which is, I mean, transfers in and of themselves are okay, but the fact that it's billed to be something different, uh, or at least commonly thought to be something different, is a little weird. So I think that critique is is smart that just mathematically, financially, it's just not, uh, not a viable, uh, program. And, you know, there's different solutions floated for this, um, which I think is, is, shows you the, the interesting sort of, uh, dichotomy of views on the mainstream, right? 
So you'll get people floating ideas like, well, let's raise the retirement age. So that would reduce the number of people on the program right now. And it would, in theory, get this, um, you know, this explicit cost every year under control. Because, uh, and it's not just, you know, extending the, the retirement date at one time. It's kind of tying it to sort of the average uh, life expectancy or something like that. Um, and so, of course, you know, this is from the left. You go, oh, this is unconscionable, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, at the same time, you, you sort of see people on the mainstream right change their, their views over their lifetime. When they're 30 years old, they're all for reform and finding ways to, uh, you know, cut the benefits down or, you know, reduce this or that or the other, reduce the taxes. Uh, but then by the time they hit 55, they're like, well, you know, I've been paying in, so I deserve this. Uh, you know, it's all of a sudden there, all those critiques that they had when they were 30 years old based on the numbers um, have just disappeared because their own <laughs> benefits are on the line now instead of someone else's. So um, I think the mainstream right is kind of uh, has a problem there. And the on the other hand, on the left, of course, you know, any any means testing is just unconscionable to these people. Um Anytime you talk about cutting benefits, uh, anytime you talk about reducing the centralization of some program, uh, then, you know, they just cannot handle that. That's no good for them, um, which is just ridiculous. I mean, obviously, uh, this is just a demonstration that a lot of these heavily centralized types of programs just don't, uh, don't work. They're not sustainable. They cannot operate in the long run because they, um, the, the people who uh, benefit from them uh, are not encouraged in any way to, um, you know, make the, the cost of the program reasonable. And so uh, I, I think those are the main criticisms you get of the program. And I think, I think we can have a slightly different set of criticisms for it. And I think, um, you know, sort of traditional right-wing uh, perspective on this would simply be that, you know, the program was a mistake for a completely different reason. Uh, it wasn't a, a mistake because, um, like the mainstream, right, would say, it's not a mistake because, you know, oh, well, the government shouldn't take care of people uh, or the government shouldn't redistribute income. Well, I, I think it should. Uh, of course it should. Um, if, if people are in need of people, um, you know, need something, there has to be some kind of solidarity. And, you know, the government, you know, governments are things that people have always had. And so it's sort of silly to think that um, all of a sudden governments would just disappear. So what I what I think we, we could um, we, we, what we could say is that, you know, the, the program was a mistake in part because it was so centralized. It doesn't take into account the fact that people live in different areas People have different um, costs of living uh, and, and things like that. People have, uh, and it didn't take into account the fact that it was really going to kill itself. Because the way, the way I see it is the, the program was, was part of the, 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 the forces that disconnected people from their families, especially their extended families. Um, you know, so if, so just as an example, you start out 
uh, young in life, you're 25 years old, have a job, and you know you're worried about your grandparents and their failing health and stuff like this, and um, you know you you know that they get social security payments, and so of course you know they not only do they have that they have medical care and all that sort of thing, so there was really never any reason for you to. Um, you know, have any kind of financial tie to your family because they've received these payments, you know, this is just baked into the system. So if you have no financial tie to your grandparents, uh, you know, of necessity, well, then it's, you know, it's, it's less important for you to maintain any other types of ties with them. And so you just don't, um, you know, your, your grandparents don't depend on their, you know, your parents, they don't depend on their children. And so you just don't see that as an important way of living. Uh, you know, the government's going to take care of it, and especially the centralized, you know, the large, the large government, largest government entity you're familiar with is going to take care of it. And so, of course, you know, why, why should it be your problem? Um, individually, of course, you know, you're being taxed, but it's not like your taxes are going directly to your grandparents. They're uh, just going to the system at large, which is hilariously inefficient anyway. Uh, you know, the... The, the the number of people that are employed and just shifting this money around um, is unreal. So, um, you know, probably just as bad as the, the broader financial system in general, uh, or if not worse. <clears throat> so we, we certainly have, I think, an anti-family, uh, anti-extended family uh, mode in here. And so to the extent that, you know, you, you get... Um, you get pushed away from your family, uh, or not pushed away, but your incentive to, to, um, you know, stick close and, and take care of your family is reduced. And so then when you build a family, of course, you know, family is just not as important to you. And so we have fewer children on average. And um, that leads to the financial situation we're in with Social Security now, where the number of people paying in uh, is so much more diminished than uh, from where it was. And People are living longer, and uh, the math just doesn't work out anymore. So the program, it's almost like it's, it was designed to be politically bulletproof. But in doing so, the the, the left-wing um, impetus behind the program didn't, didn't, you know, I mean, obviously didn't understand humanity very well and didn't understand that it was basically killing itself, um, just not politically. Sure, politically, they've got it, they've got it all figured out. But the problem was the incentives built into the system just were not sustainable. And so we kind of find ourselves at this juncture, and I, I really have no idea how to solve it. Um, there's an interesting little tool. I'll find it online. There's a little game where you try to, um, you know, change the different things in the system, the payouts and the retirement age and the taxes and all of that, and you try to save Social Security. Uh, so I'll, I'll put a link to that. It's kind of a fun game. And, it, and you see how bad it really is and how hard um, it's going to be to keep that, that system afloat. And, of course, you know, uh, it's hard to know where to go from here. But at the same time, um, you, you when you see how bad it is, and you kind of have to realize that th there has to be some kind of solution to it. And, of course, I think, you know, the, the, the best solution would be to uh, simply decentralize the thing to a great extent. Um, bring it to the state level. 
just get rid of this silly payroll tax that we have to pay. I mean, 12.4% is a lot of money. That is a massive amount of money. And if it were simply run by smaller organizations with, um, you know, the possibility of different ways of doing things, uh, we could at least have a chance at coming to a better conclusion about what the best way to handle this type of program is. But given that it's at this federal level, um, it's really hard. Uh, it just makes any, any kind of reform uh, nearly impossible um, because there, there is no example of a better solution that is, uh, you know, that is clear cut uh, for us to look at. You know, obviously we can look at other countries, um, but when you, when you go from looking at the U.S. to some other country, so many other variables change, um, cultural factors, political factors, um, things like that, it, it makes it impossible to compare the two on just that one, um, you know, just that one margin. Oh, we'll just, we'll just look at how these two countries handle their old people, um, you know, differently. Well, that's not going to do it. Um, you're not going to get any kind of good comparison out of that because there's too many things that could change between those two countries besides just that one, uh, you know, one set of policies for that program. Um, so I, I don't think it's terribly um, surprising, given previous shows, that um, you know, to me, the the traditionalist right position on this is simply to say that, well, of course we need redistribution, of course we need some kind of program um, to help people, but um, the way to do it is not to put it in the hands of the central government uh, it's just simply not the case so we are not saying taxation is theft we're not waving gadsden flags um, but we're also not waving hammer and sickle flags and we're not saying that um you know everything in the state nothing outside the state uh you know this silly communist nonsense that um well you know the central government can handle everything because you know they have the economies of scale to handle everything uh of course not and any kind of um, any kind of program that is going to work without being self-undermining is going to have to have buy-in from the people who are actually funding the program. And to the extent that the program is, um, to the extent that the program undermines itself by reducing, um, Reducing this, the social ties between generations um, is, is just a nightmare. And uh, it's going to be a big problem. And it's going to be, I think, uh, a huge uh, political issue, a huge wedge bill. It always is. But I, I think it's, it's not going to get any better financially. And so it's just going to get even worse in terms of being a political issue. And I, I hope that there are enough voices out there saying... Maybe there's another solution. Maybe there's another way to handle this. Maybe we need to just let this thing die and allow states to um, find a different way um, to handle this. States or localities or localities may not be able to do it, um, you know, in the near term. But certainly, um, states could could be a, a good step in the right direction on this. And it's totally viable. It's totally possible to, to put states in charge of this type of thing. 
And so with that, I, you know, I welcome your feedback and welcome uh, your discussion. Uh, contact us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Trad Dads. And uh, be looking in the near future here for a big announcement in the next couple of weeks. So um, with that, thanks again for listening and look forward to interacting with you. Oh, yes. And also thanks for our donors, uh, especially Ralph, who's been a, a three-time donor now uh, on Anchor.fm. So if you want to donate, Anchor.fm slash Trad Dads. Uh, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.